The reading today will be in three different books. Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. John 1, verse 14. And Revelation 21, verses 1 through 4. Printed in your bulletin. From Matthew 1. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from all their sins. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child, will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him, and he took Mary home as his wife. But he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Continuing from John 1, verse 14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And in Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with man, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and their God. He will wipe away tears from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning, or crying, or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. This ends the reading of God's word. Thanks be to God. Good morning. Let me say two things by way of introduction. Uh, I assumed that this was the first Sunday of Advent, though I have to admit that the business of uh, Christmas Eve being on a Sunday had me confused, and I had originally thought that last Sunday was the first Sunday of Advent. Uh, my wife corrected me on that. Uh, so I didn't check with Paul beforehand, so I'm trusting that there's not too much overlap or no overlap in the messages uh, between last Sunday and this Sunday. Secondly, uh, I... Normally, I use PowerPoint a lot of my teaching, and I normally in this sermon would have had some images that I would post for you, but you don't have PowerPoint, uh, you don't have the technology. So what I'll try to do is I'll, I'll sort of try to describe what these images are, because these images illustrate something in my message. Well, you've seen them on the news. Elected officials appearing at very prominent public events, announcing a new program, announcing funding for infrastructure, perhaps announcing some funds for community development, some new government initiative. And similarly, when there's a disaster or a tragedy in an area, the leader, whether it be the prime minister, the premier, perhaps the mayor of a community, shows up 
perhaps drives through, flies over, and the cameras are running, the, sh the look of deep concern on the leader's face. And they may take some time to stop and talk with the people, to roll up their sleeves and perhaps throw some sandbags on the dike, to hand out water, blankets, food, other aid, always with the cameras running so that it can be showed on the evening news demonstrating the leader's compassion and concern for the people. Now, I don't want to be cynical about that because it is important for these leaders to show concern and to be there and to be aware of the struggles that people face, especially in difficult circumstances. But of course, at the end of the day, they may fly in or drive in and then they go back home and they're happily at rest in comfortable surroundings. And they send their lower people instruct the bureaucracy in the government to go and help out and continue with aid. Now, of course, there are some who are very wealthy who do this. Uh, we think of Bill and Melinda Gates having established a foundation, uh, Warren Buffett, uh, Mark Zuckerberg, the founder of Facebook. I mean, they've really established funds that are donating billions to help people. But again, they are in their comfortable surroundings, peaceful at night, warm beds, uh, all that sort of thing. But what about God? How does he relate to us in our struggles and circumstances? Of course, he sends messengers. He sends the prophets in the Old Testament era. He sent angels. Uh, we read an account in Matthew of God sending an angel. But God does more than that. And at the heart of the Christian message is the account of one who had the greatest authority, the greatest power, one who is Lord of the whole universe and sustaining all things, and yet he is the one who comes in person, not just for a few moments, not just while prominent people are watching or the crowds are watching. He comes in a humble way, and he comes with a gift not of water bottles and blankets and promises of aid or promises of follow-up with a bureaucracy. He comes to give himself. God comes in person. And he came through the incarnation of the Son in the person of Jesus Christ in a humble way that people wouldn't have noticed, though some noticed because they were told. But he came in that humble way to reveal the glory of God who draws a people to himself through justice and grace and truth with the power of the gospel. And so that's what I want to unfold to you today with these three passages that we'll be looking at, different aspects of how God came to us in person and what the wonder and uh, the grace that we see revealed in that, in his coming and in his incarnation. So first of all, in the Matthew passage, we see that God came in person to be with us, to save us from that which separates us from him, what the Bible calls sin. Now, what do we have in this account in Matthew 1 is the story of how Mary and Joseph came to be united. Mary becomes pregnant while they're engaged. Joseph knows he isn't the father initially wants to divorce her because he's a kind man. 
He doesn't want to humiliate her publicly so that she's disgraced in the community. He plans to engage, break off the engagement quietly. And something changes his mind. And he marries her anywhere. And a child is born. And he names him, indicating that he is accepted and adopted him as his son. That's what a father would do. To name him is to embrace him as a son. Now, some could read this narrative a little differently and say, well, Mary became pregnant by somebody other than Joseph, realizes her horrible mistake, asks Joseph for forgiveness, and though initially very hurt, Joseph comes around to forgive her, accept her, and even accept the child, because he realizes he still loves Mary. And so he takes her as his wife, and then he names the son as his, his son. Could be a story of love triumphing over betrayal. How the human heart can be touched by repentance, can be moved by love. But to do that, to try to explain it away in that sense, misses the transcendent reality, divine intervention, and guidance of human history. God sends an angel to Joseph to inform and guide him. And the angel tells Joseph that Mary hasn't been unfaithful to him, that the child conceived in her is by the power of the Holy Spirit. And though initially hard to accept, he embraces it with the comforting, of, comforting words of the angel. Don't be afraid. Name him Jesus, which literally means Yahweh saves. The Lord will save his people from their sins. And this command to Joseph means that Joseph is to accept the child and to raise the child as his own. And the name Jesus, in a sense, is Joseph's expression of trust in the Lord, an acknowledgement that somehow God is at work in this situation to further his redemptive purposes. Perhaps even, there's nothing in the text that suggests this, but perhaps even the promised one that the Jews have been waiting for for many, many centuries. Matthew then tells us that this fulfills the messianic prediction of Isaiah 7.14, that a, a virgin would conceive and give birth to a son and whose name will be Emmanuel, God with us. And what is striking about this narrative is the contrast between the account of the events between the young couple to be married and the divine actions of God. Because at one level, you could just see it as something going on between a betrothed couple. But yet, the passage tells us that God is at work in the fulfillment of his redemptive promises in this humble man and this humble woman. God comes to us in the person of Jesus. God comes to be with us through the lives of two people. This is a powerful supernatural event. The actions of God to bring about his glorious and amazing salvation through humble people. This is God coming to his people in the one named Jesus. In the second passage, in John 1.14, we see that God came in person by revealing 
his divine glory by fully embracing our human existence. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, John writes, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, while the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, give us various accounts of the birth of Jesus, the early life of Jesus, the beginning of his ministry, John begins with this kind of grand narrative, almost a sort of a metaphysical statement. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. He was the light of the world, the light that shines into the darkness of this world, and the one through whom people can become children of God. Now, in one sense, what John is doing is he's using the language of sort of classical culture. And in classical Greek and Roman culture, the understanding was that there was some kind of divine principle or maybe a divine being in the supernatural realm who held all things together. This divine word, or logos in the Greek, is this spiritual principle of unity and truth for all reality and all human beings. And a Roman, a Greek, could read this and nod and say, yes, that's our understanding as well. But then in John uh, 1.14, he writes, the word became flesh and made his dwelling up among us. And for a classical Greek or Roman thinker, this would have been like a punch in the gut because the spiritual realm is the true realm, the realm that unites all things. And that's the realm that you want to aspire to. You long to die so your soul will be freed from your body. Plato uses this phrase, the body is the prison house of the soul. So you long to be free from that, to get up to the spiritual realm because the physical drags you down. The physical leads you away from ultimate reality. And yet here, John says, the word became flesh. This majestic word from all eternity, the creator of all things, the sustainer of all things, the true light and wisdom of all reality, becomes one of us. In weakness, in mortality, in dependence, John doesn't say the word became human. He says the word became flesh. And in the Greek, that really emphasizes he took on all the frailty of what it is to be human, except, of course, for sin. He came to be among us, not to do a photo op while the people are watching or the cameras are running, not to just make a brief appearance and then retreat to the glory and the wonder of heaven. In becoming flesh, he was born, he grew up, he engaged in public ministry with lots of opposition, ending in persecution and a horrible death on a cross. The word that John uses here, he dwelt among us, in the Greek literally means he tabernacled among us, which of course, for the reader who was a, Greek, or a Hebrew, would hearken back to the tabernacle, the tent where God appeared among his people, often in a Shekinah glory, and that's where they would worship God. Uh, uh, Eugene Peterson, in his book, The Message, translate this 
this, uh, the Greek here in the following way. The word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. He became one of us. He lived among us. He took up residence in our presence. And we see that his glory is manifested in this. That's what John says here. The glory of God is revealed as he takes on flesh and lives among us. The one and only, the glory of God is seen in him living, growing up, ministering, being persecuted, facing death, and rising from the dead three days later. Where nations have kings and queens, these rulers have clothes and crowns and jewels and a throne on which they sit. Now, normally I would show you an image of Queen Elizabeth. So I had two images. Queen Elizabeth, when she was first crowned queen, and when she was in the 20s, I don't know the exact date, and a more recent picture of queen. She was, of course, now the longest reigning monarch. She's past Queen Victoria, having the longest reign. And just a quick word description. Queen Elizabeth's robe is made of the best quality purple silk velvet, trimmed with the best quality Canadian ermine. The, um, all of this is, uh, has embroidery by the Royal School of Needlework. I didn't know there was a Royal School of Needlework. Apparently there is, but there's a Royal School, school of Needlework that has all this. The crown is decorated with 2,800, that is 2,800 diamonds, most notably the 105 carat diamond that was presented to the Queen from India, actually presented to Queen Victoria. She uh, also holds a scepter with a cross decorated with 333 diamonds, 31 rubies, 15 emeralds, 7 sapphires, 6 spinels, and one composite amethyst. And it was redesigned in 1910 because the Great Star of Africa, which is the largest clear-cut diamond in the world, 530 carats. You couldn't have a, an engagement ring that big. It would probably weigh your hand down. Um, above the pearl-shaped diamond is the, an amethyst mount, uh, surmounted by a cross, pate, entrusted with an emerald and small diamond. She also holds a globe, which is symbolic of the British Empire. And the globe, or the orb, is a hollow gold sphere, about six inches in diameter, has a band of gems and pearls running along the equator, and atop the orb is an amethyst surmounted by a jeweled cross symbolizing the Christian world. Actually, it has a cross on it. It's decorated with 375 pearls, 365 diamonds, 18 rubies, 9 emeralds, 9 sapphires, 1 amethyst, and on and on it goes. Uh, if any one of us were sitting there with the robe and the crown, and the globe and the scepter, we'd probably look pretty glorious. And to see a picture of that, uh, you're struck with the glory of the queen, who is still, of course, our queen. Now, I had another picture, just an image to follow that up. And the queen, without that, I'd say the unglorified queen, she's just wearing a normal, uh, normal clothes, and she's got a, uh, what do you call it, a band over her head. She just looks like a normal person. You might pass her in the mall and not even notice her. I suppose to think of the glory of Jesus, we could think of him as one who is with the Father in glory, the majesty. So there are images in the book of Revelation that what 
what it is like to see this one glorified in the presence of God, these fantastic metaphors that are used. But John says in this passage that his glory is seen precisely in his becoming flesh and blood and living among us, giving himself for us. And he describes this in terms of grace and truth. He came to be with us with goodwill, with kindness, with favor, undeserved. He took on flesh and blood so that he might redeem us who are flesh and blood. The Son of Man did not come to be served, Mark 10, 45. Not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's where his glory is seen. The one who has all authority and glory surrendered his life for the world, and especially for his sheep. He unconditionally binds himself to us. We are his, and he is ours, so that we can experience new life. Even the picture that Revelation gives us of Christ in glory with the Father is of what image? Revelation 5, the lamb that was slain. And I would show you an image of the altar's piece at Ghent in Belgium, very famous piece, where it shows people around him worshiping him, and he's on an altar, and he's the lamb that was slain. They're worshiping that lamb. Worthy is the lamb, John writes in Revelation 5. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and glory and honor and praise. He's the lamb of grace in his humility. He's the one who reveals the grace of God to us, who embodies the grace of God to us. And he is the truth, the fullness of God found in human form. Paul writes in Colossians 2. So the truth is not a concept, a theory, an abstract philosophical idea. The truth is a person who is with us, Emmanuel, who has drawn us to himself, who has revealed God and his salvation to us. And we embrace the truth in him by embracing him. He came to us in his glory, in a humble way, full of grace and truth. And finally, in the passage in Revelation, we see that God came in person, giving us the hope of a future of living fully and totally in God's presence. What we have there, of course, is an image of the renewal of all things. When all things are made new and God again dwells fully among his people. This is not a heavenly realm where we're drawn up to heaven, but rather a redeemed earth where God says, behold, I make everything new, a new heavens and a new earth. And of course, this heavenly Jerusalem that comes down is symbolic of the redeemed church, a city, a family, a perfect community made up of people from all nations who have been gathered together around the Lamb, the one who came. 
The beauty of being renewed as the people of God and being in his presence is portrayed for us there. So what is our hope? What do we long for? What do we hope for in this Advent season? Well, the loud voice in verse 3 tells us what we hope for. Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them fully, without end, for all eternity. He will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And all tears and pain and suffering and sorrow will be gone. What is set before us here is our hope. Full and unbroken fellowship with God. With ourselves being purified. All that has dragged us away from God. All that has brought dissension between human beings and even involved conflict within ourselves. It's all gone. Because God has drawn us to himself and he dwells among us in this renewed and restored earth. That's what we were created for. That's what we long for. That's what God holds out to us as the promise of the work of salvation resulting from the one who came to be with us. God came in person to be with us, to fully embrace our human existence and to give us the hope of living fully in his presence. Perhaps you don't usually think of the parable of the prodigal son as sort of a Christmas theme, an Advent theme, but... I think it is in many ways, because it's the story of a son who tries to find himself by leaving his home and makes a horrible mess of his life. And he comes to his senses, and he plans to go home. And normally, of course, the, in, the, in, the, in the custom, if a son had done that, there would be a process he'd have to go through to prove himself, be, being taken on as a servant for a while. Has he truly been repentant? Has he truly humbled himself? Is he truly willing to submit to the father and serve the household? But the parable tells us that the father sees him, is looking for him and sees him at a distance and runs to him, goes to him and embraces him. And he is made whole again, embraced, made part of the family. He's made whole again in the presence of the father. To be at home with the Father is to experience the Father, the Son, and the Spirit's presence. To be at home with God is to experience God in person. That's where peace and wholeness come. That's what Jesus came to do over 2,000 years ago in coming into this world incarnate in <clears throat> Lord Jesus Christ it is truly amazing to reflect on the fact that you came in person you didn't just send some angels or some prophets or other kinds of representatives you came you came to take on our frailty and our weakness and even the pain that we suffer. 
You gave yourself full us, for us completely, culminating in your death on the cross. And you help renew us by the power of your Holy Spirit so that we have found a home in you. Lord, we're not worthy of that. We are those who turned away from you like that prodigal. But you came to us. You came into this world. And so at this time, this amazing season of Advent, we remember the wonder of what that is. And we pray that you renew in our hearts the joy of your presence, your salvation, and the hope that we have in you. Help us to live out of that in the way we speak to others of the hope that we have this time of the year. And help us to manifest that in the way we serve others from the abundance that you have given us. Make us people who are not just Sunday proclaiming Christians, but seven day a week embodying and proclaiming Christians, embodying the fact that as you came in person to be with us, you call us in person to be present to those around us who need the hope of the gospel and need their needs met through embodying the care of the gospel. We pray that in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.